Welcome to the crux of the story. I'm Mike Fernandez, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Gary Sheffer, as we explore how communication in its many forms are reshaping society and business and the way we live, work, and play. Gary, how are you this week? Hey, great, Mike. I'm, I'm back on campus at Boston University. I have my first classes today, and I'm completely unprepared. So uh, other than that, <laughs> things are looking good for the fall semester. Well, good, 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 good. Well, we've, we have an interesting guest this morning. This past week, there were news stories marking a major breakthrough in the fighting in the Ukraine, where Russian troops were forced to retreat from Eastern U Ukraine around the country's second largest city, uh, Kharkiv. The story was not only remarkable in that it showed great resiliency on the part of the Ukraine military, the story itself was unique in that the news stories were accompanied by satellite imagery, not from one of those news agencies that you normally hear about, but from a technology company, Maxar Technologies, for whom our guest today serves as its vice president of communications. Uh, Maxar has become the world leader in state-of-the-art satellite communications and reconnaissance technology, and in many ways is helping to transform transparency, and even news reporting in several realms from agriculture to climate change, supply chains, and financial information. To give us a window on all this, our guest today is Fernando Vivanco. Uh, Fernando has been a senior level communicator for a number of blue chip technology driven companies, including Boeing, Honeywell, Medtronic, and TE Connectivity. Fernando, welcome to the crux. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Thank you, Mike. Mike and Gary, thanks for having me on your podcast this morning. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Well, we are too. And, and, and first, tell us about how Maxar satellite imagery is combating misinformation during the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. Sure, thanks. Uh, well, several months before the Russian military invaded Ukraine, Maxar began releasing satellite imagery to the media showing the buildup of troops and equipment along the Ukrainian border. Uh, you might remember at the time that Russia was denying any plans to invade Ukraine and that they were, you know, they were saying that they were conducting routine military exercises. And, you know, shortly before the invasion, the Russians said that they were starting to move troops and equipment away from the border. Well, we had been, uh, our satellite constellation had been uh, closely monitoring activity in Ukraine and in the surrounding areas. And through um, our news bureau, Maxstar made much of this imagery available to news organizations uh, around the world, you know, as part of a broader effort to, su to support global transparency and help combat the spread of the Kremlin's disinformation campaign um, about what they were saying about you know, the events in Ukraine. So, you know, Maxstar's satellite images, which many folks have seen, 
are helping provide a lot of that evidence that now investigators are starting to use to build cases that Russia has been violating human rights, committing war crimes in Ukraine, and other uh, tragic uh, activities as well. Yeah, I'm and, and so, you know, we took on this effort early on to really make a lot of our satellite imagery available to kind of to share that imagery and document the invasion and a lot of the resulting humanitarian crisis as well, Mike. Well, welcome to the crux, Fernando. It's, it's so great to talk to you. I am really very curious about your company and, and what you do. It's really, really amazing. One of the Maxar-related stories from Ukraine that underscores what you've just been talking about, which is uh, providing greater transparency about the war, was shared in the September 1st New York Times magazine. It's the tale of that theater that we've all read about in Maripol. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which was hit by airstrikes in March, an atrocity the Russian troops denied. Could you share that story with our audience and its, its significance? I was struck by looking at that story when I looked at the credit on the aerial imagery, it was not a news organization. It was your company. Yeah, yeah. The, the events that took place in Mariupol are one of several tragedies that we helped bring to light. Um, you know, the theater had become a main uh, bomb shelter in Mariupol. It was housing more than a thousand people. And, uh, you know, one of our analysts uh, that works in our news bureau, he speaks Russian. And while analyzing images in the area, he noticed the word children had been painted in large white letters in Russian, both in the front of the theater and in the back of the theater, so it could be seen from the sky, to in essence signal to the Russians that this was not a military target. Um, the theater was then bombed, and um, the, the word children was still visible on the ground when our satellite in, satellites collected new imagery. You know, we've later found out that more than 600 people are known to have died in this tragic event. Right. There are several of these events that we've helped shed light on. You know, many of these are memorable events that many of your listeners could probably recognize that our Newsbrook team has really uh, brought to light. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, you may remember there is a lot of media coverage around the infamous uh, Russian convoy of um, that was a 40 mile long convoy of mu Russian military equipment and troops that were headed to um, to Kiev. This was at around the same time that the Russians were claiming that they were pulling back from Ukraine. And, um, you know, the satellite images that we captured and distributed to the media clearly countered the Russians claim. Another story that we helped break involved, uh, it was late spring, early summer, you know, involved grain from Ukraine being taken the, by the Russians. So you might remember this summer that the Russians were blocking the Ukrainian ports, which blocked the export of grain to the rest of the world. So a lot of the grain from last year was left in these silos in the ports, and the farmers were struggling or wondering where to store this year's harvest and what to do with that. Through some of our satellite imagery, um, late spring, early summer, we were able to track and show multiple Russian ships that were docked in, in the port of uh, Sevastopol, and they were being loaded with uh, the Ukrainian grain. Essentially, they were stealing it. And we were able to see a lot of the images of these same ships right. that were later docked in Syria, offloading grain into semi-trucks in Syria. So, you know, the, to me, these are some of the more memorable images 
in the last six or seven months. And, you know, the interesting thing is that the resolution of our satellite imagery is so good that um, you could actually see the grain pouring in into these semi-trucks uh, and being ready to be hauled away. So while Russia was denying stealing grain from Ukraine, satellite imagery provided evidence that countered this misinformation. Well, th- this is what's so fascinating to me, Fernando. You know, when when our listeners and I think of a satellite company, satellite imaging company, you don't think of this kind of work, particularly a, a news bureau. So how did that all come together? And And is it a commercial enterprise? You know, there's a mixture here of of uh, what we would call in the past CSR and and doing good things. So if you could explain how this came together, the News Bureau, and and sort of how it works, it'd be great. Sure. You know, much much of this groundwork took place before I joined the company. Maxar has been working closely with the media for many, many years, oftentimes to spotlight a number of uh, different events around the world, whether it's 9-11, you know, oil spills, earthquakes in Japan, tsunamis, and we would distribute some of this imagery to reporters around the world to sort of illustrate or document that. But I think the work that we did um, several years ago with the Associated Press, they worked on a Pulitzer Prize winning project called Seafood from Slaves. And it was an investigation in 2016 to really get, that really helped get us thinking about building a broader program with our news bureau effort. And so what we did is we focused our, a lot of our satellite imagery and a lot of the analysis to begin to help a lot of news organizations around the world to bring transparency to events to help counter misinformation. Now, this, this uh, Seafood for Slaves project, which I referenced, it was a very interesting story, Gary, and uh, one that I would encur- you know, invite you and, and Mike and listeners to read. But it really, it, it located men who were held in cages that were, you know, we helped track ships and uh, the AP, stra- they also tracked uh, refrigerated trucks to expose these various abusive practices of the fishing industry in Southeast Asia. So, you know, the, the series of stories that the AP worked on, it led to the release of more than 2,000 slaves and they traced the seafood they caught uh, to supermarkets across the U.S. Wow. So just a fascinating story, and to be able to play a part in that and use satellite technology for something good like that uh, that resulted in freeing more than 2,000 slaves, such a powerful and emotional story when you really think about it and read it. Oh, yeah. Well, and following up a little bit on, on, on sort of Gary's question, so this in some ways kind of started off, it, sound, it sounds like, as a demonstration of your technology. And it, it, and then all of a sudden it's like, wow, we could do this for more events where this technology could be brought to bear. Is that right? Yeah. So today our news bureau program has grown steadily uh, over the years. And we now have more than a thousand journalists, graphic editors, investigative reporters in news organizations around the world that receive our satellite imagery. Um, and, and also it's a truly collaborative effort with the media outlets around the world. In some instances, we'll distribute satellite imagery uh, on various global events. In some cases, the media will come to us with specific story ideas that we then collaborate on. 
But, you know, if you look at specifically the last, since the beginning of the year in Ukraine, our news bureau team, uh, we've produced more than 400 images of the conflict, and we've distributed these images to a growing list of media around the world. And we also push this through our own social media channels. So in many cases, you know, Maxar is the first to provide new information to the world about the various tragedies or atrocities taking place um, in Ukraine. You know, personally um, and also professionally, it's been uh, gratifying to see a lot of the positive impact we're making. Uh, let me give you an example. You know, several months ago, one of our leaders was being interviewed by the CBC, uh, by CBC TV in Canada. Uh, I remember the reporter during the interview say that they start their daily editorial meetings asking if there's any new satellite imagery from Maxstar that needs to be part of their show. Wow. We receive emails from media outlets around the world thanking us and telling us how much of a positive impact our images have been. And also, uh, more on a personal level, I've also, you know, throughout my career, I've had a chance to work with uh, colleagues all over the world, including uh, in Eastern Europe. And, um, you know, I've lost contact with many of these individuals, but in the last six months, I've had several individuals in Eastern Europe you know, reach out to me and thank me for the imagery that Maxar is putting out and sort of my role in helping tell that story. Because if you think about these, these individuals in some of the Eastern European countries, the border, the, you know, they're along the border of, of Russia and Ukraine, they're sort of wondering, is Russia going to expand beyond Ukraine and invade other countries? So there are a lot of people that have really been looking to Maxar and our imagery to better inform them of what's going on. Yeah. Well, and you kind of alluded to it even in, in part of your answer that you'd worked with a lot of other companies, a lot of other global technology driven companies. And yet Maxar elements of the company go back a long time as Maxar. I think they came together like about five years ago. Is that right? Yeah. It's through a uh, number of acquisitions and mergers that came together. Yeah. Uh, mergers and acquisitions and yeah. So, but, but you've come in here relatively smaller company compared to these larger companies that you worked for before. What is it like to now step into a situation where your charge in part is to help establish the function? Yeah. You know, Mike, I feel I've been blessed in my career to work with some really great companies that really make an impact on a larger global scale. Uh, I've also been able to see what good or great communications and best practices look like. You know, Maxar is a much smaller company, both in market cap and the number of employees than I've worked with uh, in, in the past. But a lot of the communications principles are the same, whether you're in a small company or a large company. And, and so I think from that perspective, I've been transitioning well. I think one of the bigger differences I see uh, working with a much smaller company is that uh, what I do seems to have a much bigger impact at a smaller company. And it's also felt more and appreciated more by many of our business partners and leaders internally in the company. So, um, you know, I came on board, you know, six or seven months ago. The company is investing more in communications and I've been helped, I've been asked to help elevate the function. And so as part of that, we're really looking at, you know, kind of the three legs of a stool, looking at people, processes, and tools. So we're hiring uh, more communicators 
Uh, and we're also helping create that framework from processes and tools that will help us scale to support what's, what's a growing business. You know, prior to me joining, historically, the communications headcount at Maxar was mostly a corporate, and we would try to provide support across our three business segments as, as we could. What we're doing now is we're creating and investing in a structure where corporate remains well-resourced, but we are now adding uh, communicators that are dedicated to each of our business segments and led by a senior communications professional. So the communicators in those segments can help drive or elevate awareness of their portfolios and, uh, and do, so, do so in a more meaningful way. So for example, many people are aware that Maxar has the largest archive of the world's high resolution satellite imagery, but many people may not know that we also manufacture satellites. For example, more than 90 uh, Maxar built satellites are currently in orbit. So if you're using maps, your, your map apps like Google Maps or Apple Maps on your phone, you're probably using mapping imagery collected by our satellites. You've got billions of people in the world who rely on broadcasting services that are powered by Maxar satellites. Hmm. We've been manufacturing robotic arms for many NASA missions, you know, and we're starting to move more into commercial opportunities where communications is critical to help create that awareness and help shape some of those opportunities in these new markets. Well, and in fact, one of the things that, that caught my eye was thinking about, you know, what that satellite technology, what your geospatial technology, what all of that can do. And, and you and I talked before about uh, some of the efforts that have gone into to glean more transparency relative to financially relevant information. I've got to imagine that certain aspects of this data can be pretty important to investors and fund managers, especially to the extent you're able to monitor inventories or movement of container ships. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I think when it comes to investors or fund managers, they're always looking for that advantage, and that advantage can come from information and speed to that information. There's a large and growing number of data sources uh, that are available to many of these professional investors, these fund managers. And so, for example, uh, historically, or oftentimes, you would hear or read about short sellers who would sort of stake out at a manufacturing facility to find out who's coming and going or what their supply chain looks like. Well, now, you know, the detail, you, you don't have to be there. You can sit at your computer and you can, you know, you've got a lot of that information uh, almost at your fingertips. So a lot of our imagery can allow these folks to monitor various assets, whether it's, you know, how full is your parking lot? How many airplanes have left the factory and are sitting waiting to be delivered to customers? right? How many cars are parked outside of factories, for example? You know, a year ago, you may remember um, where there was a lot of discussion around supply chain and bottlenecks and stuff. Um, you know, we, we distributed images showing ships that were lined up outside of the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, uh, waiting to enter port, you know, and have those goods be transported onto their final destinations. So a lot of this information is just more widespread and yet it's another resource for uh, for many of these professional investors. 
you know, Fernando, Mike always wants to go with his accounting background. He always wants to go into the, you know, details of that, the balance sheet and all of that. I want to get back to the stories uh, of, of Maxar, which are just uh, really fascinating to me. For example, saw a story from earlier this year where you're partnering with the Amazon conservation team, which works with indigenous and local communities to protect tropical forests. And you've worked with the Amazon conservation team to expose illegal mining in the Colombian Amazon. That sounds like a fascinating story. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how, how did that partnership come about? Yeah, th- this is another one of those exciting or fascinating stories, like you said, Gary, and there's there's a lot of them uh, at, at Maxar. So the Amazon conservation team is, is one of the many nonprofit organizations that we work with. So we what we do is we provide geospatial data to nonprofits. Uh, we work with nonprofits where, that we think can significantly benefit from using our data to really advance their, their missions. But the story uh, specifically with the Amazon conservation team, you know, during the pandemic, they really had to sort of expand their use of satellite imagery to monitor what was going on in the Amazon mm-hmm. rainforest because a lot of the park rangers left their posts during the pandemic. And so essentially they didn't have eyeballs on the ground to sort of monitor what was going on. Right. And, you know, you may know that uh, illegal mining of gold is pretty widespread in the Amazon. Absolutely. And uh, not only are you pulling the resources, but their, you know, chemicals can also damage the, the environment there. And so the, uh, the Amazon conservation team, they asked uh, Maxar for new imagery to be tasked and to monitor the region a lot more. And the organization used a lot of new imagery uh, from Maxstar to begin to track a lot of these illegal gold miners who were entering these protected areas. They then shared a lot of this data with the Colombian government. And then once a lot of this uh, data and information was received, the Colombian government then went in and executed a raid to arrest a lot of these miners and also seize their chemicals and destroy their barges. So great story. And, you know, when you think about uh, Maxstar, one of our, our purpose is what we call for a better world. And that really guides our company's actions, our commitments to improving life on Earth from space. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Well, so it seems to me that with your capability you know, tracking things around agriculture and sustainability. Are you working with other NGOs, other companies in that space, Fernando? Yeah, we do, um, Gary. We work uh, with multiple governments, a lot of commercial customers, where we work with them to estimate, you know, crop yields, for example. So information can be used to predict food instability. It can be used to predict future uh, commodity pricing of various agricultural products. And, uh, you know, one of our products at Maxar is called Weather Desk. 
it's an on-demand product that really transforms or takes a lot of that weather data and helps provide actionable insights for our customers. So let me give you an example of that. At the beginning of the summer, uh, Maxar published an assessment of Ukraine's crops, and we predicted that the fall harvest would be down quite a bit compared to last year. Mm-hmm. And um, so our, our weather desk used proprietary processing tools to project that farmers may harvest up to 50% less crops this fall compared to 2021. Now, there are a lot of factors um, that disrupted this year's planting season, including farmers who may have left their fields to defend their country, you know, farmers who couldn't plant because there was a lot of fighting in the area mm-hmm. or the availability okay. of seeds. Wow. We also captured satellite imagery that showed that a lot of farmer, a lot of the farmland was peppered with uh, artillery craters, for example. So one of Ukraine's claims is that they are the breadbasket of Europe. So think about that from a food insecurity perspective, and what are the implications in that region of the world? That's that's really amazing. And you combine that imaging capability with some kind of weather forecasting. I mean, literally, do you have weather you know, meteorologists who, who work with you as well? We actually do. We have meteorologists on our team as well that monitor these weather patterns around the world. That's, that's fabulous. I mean, in, in some ways, this storyline reminds me a little bit of my days at Cargill. We were using satellite imagery and drones to essentially track whether or not farmers were in compliance with something that was called the soy moratorium, which was just a series of protocols established with NGOs for sustainable farming that is the sustainable farming of of soy in Brazil, with the aim of trying to protect the Amazon. So I think that there's, I'm fascinated by how far this technology has gone in a relatively short time frame. That said, while, while, while I reflect on this, and we can see the power and the impact of more transparency, I want to ask you a bit of a philosophical question, if I may, at what point does big data become big brother? You know, do I need to be a bit worried if I go skinny dipping out in my my swimming pool? I'm worried, Mike, if you do that, but go ahead. Go ahead, Fernando. Wow. Well, I don't want to comment too much about your swimming, uh, but you should always probably be more careful about skinny dipping in a swimming pool. Um, no, in all seriousness, I think that's a good question, Mike, but, you know, as good as the resolution is from our satellite, our commercial satellites, you know, it's at the point where you can identify that there's an individual, but it's not to the point where you can specifically identify that individual or the facial features. Uh, but I think the question that you ask is, is a much, it's much broader than, you know, satellite imagery. Uh, there's such a proliferation of data sources around the world. Look, we have four satellites in space gathering imagery, okay? But if you think of the number of other sensors here on Earth that are collecting information from your ring doorbells, cameras in businesses, you know, cameras on the streets in certain cities, uh, cell phones, and the information people that are willing to post on social media, I, I think that's 
probably mm-hmm. the broader discussion that needs to Interesting. happen there. Well, I'm really enjoying this entire discussion. And, you know, Mike knows, and I've talked about it on uh, this podcast, I- I'm a bit of a space fanboy. You know, I grew up in the 1960s and uh, loved the space pro- U.S. space program. And uh, I get very excited about every launch, even the private ones these days. Uh, I'm hoping NASA can get Artemis to the moon you know, off the ground here soon. Uh, we're 0 for 2 so far. But I, I, I know that your company has major contracts with the U.S. government and with NASA. And I'm interested in the work um, that you do called Precision 3D which you use high-resolution satellite imagery and proprietary AI, artificial intelligence, processing to create the most accurate 3D maps available. So what's, Fernando, if you can, share how those things are being used by NASA and the U.S. government? Yeah, so we're taking our high-res satellite imagery and creating essentially a, a digital twin of the Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these 3D maps have applications for military, for commercial customers, as well as commercial use cases that we could talk a little bit more later as well. One of the programs we're working on with the U.S. Army is a program called One World Terrain. So I guess a good analogy for that would be uh, if you think of the world's largest Call of Duty video game. What we're doing is we're building out a 3D training environment for soldiers that they can use while planning and practicing various missions. But it can also be used for real situations as well. So that's one example. I think another one that's interesting is um, uh, a a project where we're combining our precision 3D along with software uh, with a camera that could be put on a fighter jet. So one of the capabilities the military is looking at is, you know, if you think about the scenario, what do you do if one of our adversaries were to knock out the GPS network? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, this is relied on heavily by not not only us, you know, in our day-to-day lives with, you know, maps and driving and things like that, but it's relied on for flying planes and also military aircrafts, they know where they are, where they're headed. Right. Our software can compare this video feed that comes in through the camera to this precision 3D product and also determine where that jet is located without having to use GPS. So it's just fascinating when you think about creating this digital twin of the earth and uh, being able to use this as a backup to the GPS network if it were to go out. That's amazing. I'm going to look for you, Fernando, in the next Top Gun movie uh, i'm sure you'll be in the back seat with maverick that but that's really amazing I mean, we, we think about you think about how how much we rely on gps capability it just uh in our everyday lives and we don't think we don't think for a second about it any augmented reality metaverse kind of opportunities for that too fernando yeah and actually gary that's one of the things that got me excited about joining maxar first of all like you, I love aerospace. It's very exciting. But when I started to learn a lot more about some of the efforts that the company is pursuing more on that commercial side and metaverse side, it, there's just a lot of growth opportunities there. But our this precision 3D 
product that I reference will also serve as this foundation for the metaverse. So, you know, video games, I, I mentioned this contract with the army. Mm -hmm. Think about some of the other video game applications, augmented reality, virtual reality. And so a lot of these games that can transport you to sort of anywhere. And as companies begin to develop more of these augmented reality or metaverse environments, uh, we think that they will use a lot of Maxar technologies to underpin those those efforts that many of these commercial companies are working on. Terrific, terrific. Hey, before we uh, we let you go, just a f Mike and I just a few wrap up questions. So I'm I'm interested in your career path. You've been with a number, as Mike said, technology based companies: Boeing, Honeywell, Medtronic, uh, among them. Were you always interested in technology, Fernando? And and does that account for the success you've had in your career is, is this depth of understanding of how technology works? You know, I, I've never set out to work with tech companies. Actually, my first job, which started as an internship and then turned into a job, was I was actually promoting internationally renowned concert pianists. So, you know, far <laughs> from uh, tech companies, right? But, yeah. you know, it, it's just how my career after working in a PR agency ended up it, I just stumbled onto my first corporate job working at Boeing. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, at the beginning, I truly feel I've been blessed to work with great companies and work on very meaningful projects that have broad impact. And, and I think that's one of those common threads about the companies I worked for uh, throughout my career. So if you look at Boeing, right, planes, defense systems that protect our nation, amazing technology where you try to hit a bullet with a bullet to working at Medtronic, uh, the world's largest mm -hmm. med tech company, where you're working on me medical technology products that save lives, that restore health, extend a person's life, or TE connectivity, you know, manufacture sensors and connectors. One segment of that business was around automotive. So if you look at the trend around electric vehicles and extending battery life, you know, sort of being at the forefront of that uh, and helping make that happen, that's really exciting. And then now the work that we that I get to work on at Maxar. For me, what it comes down to is waking up every morning and knowing that I'm working on something that's very exciting and truly matters as well. Terrific. A lot of I remind I remind my students often that, you know, you, you might have some plans for your career, but some of it is serendipity. Right. You end up in the, the right place and you learn a lot and you, you figure out what you like and what you're good at. Yeah, I think that's how my career has turned out, Gary. And, and again, I feel blessed, lucky, and it, it's been great. Yeah, all of our lives are kind of like building blocks, if you will. <laughs> and kind of in that in, in that same vein, I mean, one of the things that, Fernando, you and I share is uh growing up Latino in, in, in Southern California. I'm wondering what part of your family and upbringing has shaped your your thinking and influences your work yeah let me uh, that, that's an interesting question mike and um you know look my parents are both immigrants my father came to this country from chile at a young age he grew up homeless on the streets at a very young age I don't think that my father has more than two years of combined formal education 
in his entire life. You know, my father is self-educated. He's always surrounding himself with books. Uh, in fact, as I was thinking about this question today, I remember a couple of years ago, um, you know, he, he and my mom spent a week with us for Christmas. And, um, you know, you would always find uh, my dad on the couch uh, reading from my uh, son's high school history textbook. And the whole point was, you know, he always loved learning. My mother, she came to this country at the age of eight, of, of the, at the age of 14, and she came here by herself. So, you know, my father, he worked hard to provide the basics uh, for our family. I've got two sisters. He often worked the graveyard shifts. He taught us the value of hard work. Uh, if we wanted something, we had to work hard for it. And, you know, I think since an early age, as far as I can remember, uh, I had jobs such as pulling weeds for a dollar an hour. You know, we would go to the beach regularly with the family as our uh, activities, right? As our inner form of entertainment. And, you know, we would collect aluminum cans at the beach and bring them home and cash them in for extra spending money. We had uh, apricot, fig, and avocado trees in our neighborhood. My friends and I would, you know, pick them and, and sell them at the end of the street uh, to get money so we could play video games. So I've always grown up working. I think one of the things that this has taught me that I sort of apply in corporate is I may not always have the size of budgets that I would like, but sometimes you have to be creative or scrappy and find a way to get the job done, right? I think it's also taught me the value of education. For me and my family growing up, you know, education meant opportunity. Uh, my parents, and I have no idea how, they put uh, me and my two sisters through private schools. I was the first one in our family to go to college. And, you know, throughout this process, I didn't really have a roadmap of how to apply for college, how to take the required entrance exams, how to sign up for classes, housing, you know, a lot of the things that are so basic that we take for granted. But a lot of that, I had to figure that out. And some of that was with help of mentors and others who would take me under their wings. And I would ask a lot of questions. So I think ongoing education or professional development, that's important to me. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of these other examples are also relevant in navigating within a new company or a new industry as well. Fernando, thank you for being on the crux. Greatly appreciate those personal insights and taking us on a bit of a new journey in communications as associated with Maxar Technologies. And to our audience, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Crux. Our producer is Boston University student Anna Huynh. This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication or COM, as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, COM is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.com dot edu forward slash com.